This is Creative to Creative. Together, we deep dive into the creative and production processes of leading creatives, finding out what makes them tick, how they do what they do, and the challenges along the way. This is Creative to Creative, powered by Motion by Design. Today on C2C, we interview Tony Lawrence. Tony's the Chief Revenue Officer at Mighty Kingdom, a game development studio based in South Australia. With over 15 years of experience in the industry, Tony has worked on high-budget games and has a passion for combining creativity with business. Welcome, Tony, to Creative to Creative. So, Tony, thanks for coming on the show today. Cheers, um, Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do? Yeah, I'm Tony Lawrence. I'm the Chief uh, Revenue Officer at Mighty Kingdom. That's basically only half the P&L of the company, the the sales, the revenue, whether that comes through in contracts with working for hire or how we monetize our products for our our customers. Those kind of things sit under my remit. Tell us a bit about your background, where you came from, how you ended up where you are today. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not from South Australia. I'm from New South Wales. I had a love for music as my first love growing up and I found a degree where I could actually start making music and my music with being my music recording. In all places called Wagga Wagga, middle of nowhere, but I had a great, great teacher there, you know, a guy called John Sayers whose you know, CV includes things like Russell Morris's the, the Real Thing up through basically anyone who's rock and roll in Australia through the 80s. One of my first gigs realistically was working for the Sydney Opera House. As a sound engineer, I went through the ranks pretty quickly there. So I was a head of sound, the technical director and head of commercial as I left. But that was a bug for creative industries for me. I loved it. I love working with creative people and a sound engineer, love working with the technology. Those things were critical to me. I was pretty bored though. So I did something stupid and did a master's of business administration. So I did that in one of the best schools in Australia. Sent four years as a consultant doing terrible things, restructuring businesses. And that was things as large as David Jones or... Sydney International Airport Security. But I had enough. I like just basically missed working with creative people all the time and found a gig working in games. I didn't know there was gigs in games, particularly in Australia. I just thought that was just crazy. As it turned out, the game I was looking for, the studio I first started working with was 2K Australia. And they just released my favourite game on an Xbox, which is called Bioshock. So my first gig in games was the head of 2K Australia. Basically, you know, the, the, the studio that made all the Bioshock games and a Borderlands game and a couple of uh, original IP. But that really, really got, I got the bug of, of, of developing games, working in a global industry, particularly working at the high end of technology and creative pursuit. Just can't get rid of it. And then and soon, that's, that's more than 15 years ago now. I'm still there and still love it. So did you already have a passion for games at that point? Like, where- yeah. Did you think that that would ever combine creativity and, and gaming? I, I, I think, you know, like I'm not young, so I, I can really say that my first console was an Atari 2600. Um, I've been playing games forever, basically. Um, I think I had a, a short break while I was pursuing um, sound, um, but when I got back into it as soon as I left that, that atmosphere, um, and I've always loved it. So playing games has always been part of who I am. Um, and, and, and again, it's a technology part of that. If I wasn't, you know, in my teens and early 20s, I was programming yeah, just because I could and it was fun. But yeah, I mean, then coming into games at, at the time I did was incredibly like, up, upheaval, a time of upheaval, I guess, for the games industry, which was, it was the GFC. I think I started at 2K three or four months before the GFC. The company I was working for was going through a takeover attempts from EA, from, from Take-Two to, to, to EA. 
And I think a year later in 2009, Apple iPhone was released with the App Store. By 2010, there was a whole new genre of games for mobile phones. So that was my introduction. It was kind of like full turmoil, full innovation all the time. And I think over the years of being in the game industry, that hasn't changed at all. So, you know, I, I, like, I love being part of this because of the, the, the innovation that just happens daily. It's, it's always an industry of change. It just has never stopped. I've been lucky as well, I, I guess, working in at, at that end of the scale, which is, you know, games. You know, I, I've worked on games which have been uh, budgets of $100 million, for instance. That's allowed me to work with studios all over the world. So done quite a bit of work with American studios, some European studios, as well as a working as the, well, I had a role as the president of the Game Developers Association of Australia, which in, 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 at, the, at that particular time, as mobile developers were coming up and doing some great things, world beating as it turns out, having some insight into what that world looks like as well, which has helped me quite a bit coming into Mighty Kingdom over the last five years. So. Yeah, so it, it, it's a fantastic industry in that, and it's always changing. Business, business models are always changing. The, the kind of things that you need are, are always changing. And yeah, I'm just looking at the, what, what's on the horizon now, which is, again, going to introduce great change to creative industries, particularly around AI. It, it's an interesting background mix of creativity and financial and business. Hmm. Where, where do you find that sort of fits in and, and I guess what – Special powers is that giving you <laughs> moving forward? It, it, it is an interesting, it's, it's a, a different kind of skill set, but it's, it's one I love. I mean, essentially, content is always king. Great games, you know, great films, great television series, great podcasts are all about the content, right? The difficulty, what I've found with working in all those industries I've worked across in, is that the concentration of the creative is, is always fantastic. How to monetize it or bring it to your audience is more of the point, is how do you bring it to an audience? has been the thing that's been not looked at. I love talking to people. I love understanding what they what they're looking for and what but how they get enjoyment or what they, you know, what they really get into. So being able to look at both of those and be able to help creative people specifically hit the audience they want to and solve the problems they want to for an audience they're looking for is has been, you know, fairly inspiring for me. I mean, when I first came into games, I specifically asked, hey, who's your audience? Who are you making this game for? And it was a pretty big game. And, they were, and the, you know, the initial response we were finding it either in, in the studio I was working with or many studios I, I worked with or, or talked to or had interaction with was, we're doing it because it's cool. Which is like, <laughs> okay, cool. That, that's the gamer audience sorted out. I reckon there's probably more people would really love playing these games if you thought about those people as well. So that's really the, the, the understanding where I see it is I, I want to focus the, the developers, particularly in games or any kind of creative field is who are you making it for? You know, it's great that you want to express yourself through this particular medium doing these particular things, but you really want people to see it, right? You do. How do you get it in the hands of the most people to be able to have the experience that you want to have, have the same joy that you feel making this or developing this or creating it? And that's been the, that's the, the critical difference. It's not about business. It's getting the art to the audience. So do you feel that, you know, out of the chicken and the egg, the creative and the the audience. You, what what comes first in the gaming space? Are you out finding out what audience want, and then providing that need and finding artists that align with that that gap in the market, or is it the other way around? It, it, it's. I would have to say it's always the creative first, and I think once you've understood stood what that is, it's it's then understanding well who is that audience, and here's the expectations you can, you can have or you can appreciate with the audience you're looking for. So, you know, art for art's sake is certainly a thing. I don't expect that to have an audience. If you're okay with that, well, that's, that's fine. We can do that. 
I work for a public listed company. So having an audience is kind of critical for a, <laughs> a bottom line result. So there's a lot of things that are involved in that. It is like I, I look at where we have had success at Mighty Kingdom and in, in, in other places I've worked is narrative is a, a key driver of value. So what kind of narrative? What kind of games have that kind of narrative? What kind of story do you want to tell and who's the audience that's going to be listening to that story are fairly critical in determining what that game could look like or who is, who's it for. We've had some a lot of success with, with kids and women the narratives that we've, we've put together, but essentially it's it's very much around about understanding our audience to make sure that what we're doing or creating is going to resonate with the audience we want to have. Now, sometimes that audience is terribly small, sometimes much, much, much smaller than I'd like. Yep. But with that, with you can't really go into that kind of enterprise with understanding without understanding who that audience is, or have a good understanding of how wide, or broad, or deep that audience could be. Does the platform come into it? you know, early days because of the skills you've got internally to build out the app or the... Or the oh, absolutely. Thing. Absolutely. I mean, the way I look at things is, is really, you know, from a business perspective is what's the capability that you have within to to develop the whatever that game is versus who's the audience going to be, what access to capital do you need to have to be able to hit that audience? Yeah. Profitability perspective. But certainly you need to understand that very, very clearly. I'm working in a mobile studio Currently, we have done some development on console, but I, I wouldn't say it would be a, a console-first studio. Where I've worked in purely console studios, where we've done some small bits of mobile content, and I'd say again, that, that's that AAA mobile is very different, or AAA console is very different to free-to-play mobile in terms of business models and skill sets. You need. So you really need to understand what you have to make the best content you, you can. <laughs> I might just get you to just tip the mic, mic up a little bit. It's just wrong. That's pretty tight. Yeah. It is. Loaded question, but where does the money come from a bigger project like this? Are you are you finding the funds before you go out and produce the project or is it private investor or is it like where where does the money come for these longer term projects? At all of those things. We at Mighty Kingdom made a decision to be a publicly listed company a couple of years ago. Part of my job was to prepare the company to be publicly listed. That acts, uh, allows you access to capital to, into some st- extents. However, that that's predetermined by your success in that market. So you, know, you can get access to capital that way. It's, it's probably the extreme end. Um, you can look for uh, investment from other 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 places. Um, other funds are looking for diversify their um, investment portfolio. Um, games is something that's been known to grow fairly quickly. I mean, it's been ten percent year on year for as long as I can remember, except for the last year, as it turns out. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, wow. yeah. It's, no, it's, so post-COVID or during COVID? During COVID, it w- went nuts. It went beyond the 10%. And post-COVID into a high inflationary period in, the, in most economies, it's come down. And that's probably been the first time I've seen it decline Interesting. ever. Do you feel like there might be a, an opportunity if there for more outside games at this stage, for instance, whether it's VR or something where people are out and about but they're still gaming. I don't know. Like- you bet. I mean, I, I, it's funny because the market is still huge. It, it's a two hundred billion dollar industry globally. It's no. bigger than film and music combined. That's a pretty unfair statistic, but it's true. <laughs> so even though that the growth hasn't been as staggering in the last year or so, it's it's still huge it's an incredibly fragmented market in terms of market share is concerned you won't see microsoft or activision or ea owning 50 percent of a market just doesn't exist 
So there's always opportunity to move forward, as I said before, new technologies and, and change, you know, finding the best ways to be able to use that. Um, there'll be a market for it, particularly for something of that size. So yeah, not, not difficult, I guess. And I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. I, I think there's probably, when you look at the global economy for uh, games specifically, there's been a lot of uh, merger and acquisition activity over the last couple of years. Some of it's been small, some of it's been broad. I mean, something like Embracer Group, it has been known for doing 15 M&As in a day versus a Microsoft who buys an Activision or looking, seeking to buy Activision. Yep. Even, you know, I, I see that activity happening in Australia as well. There's been many studios that have been acquired in the last year or so. The great thing about that is it allows them to start investing in, in more content, providing more jobs for people and doing, creating a, a bigger and a larger industry for Australia. And that's great. So that, you know, the, the finding the capital is definitely a part of that picture. Whether it's not just capital, but the traditional ways of finding um, capital for games or investment in games is going to have a chat with a publisher for a great idea, and it has to be a great idea. I think having a, an industry is as huge as the games industry is, you're one person in a million people who are vying for the same investment for your game. So your game's got to be the best there is, essentially. <laughs> there, there, there is. With a track record as well. With a, well, that kind of helps, right? I mean, we recently won the best storytelling for mobile at the Mobile Games Award in the UK recently for Pocket Gamer. When I say, look, we have an, an extensive investment expertise in, in narrative, people are going, yeah, yeah, I like what you've got. And you go, and I'm award-winning narrative studio. And they go, oh, yeah, okay. So that makes the conversation a lot easier to have. You know, but that, that's, that's, that's my world, right? My world is really around, around finding and building those relationships. I've been lucky to be able to, to find a lot of those relationships throughout my career. And, you know, we have uh, a lot, of t- lot to talk about in terms of games. I mean, I think that's one of the big things about working in creative industries, just, you know, off the bat. We love what we do. We, we can't hide it. We wear it in our sleeve. We put it in our games. We put it in our films, our, our, our music. It's just who we are. So you can't really fake that i'd have to say so even if I'm, I'm doing specifically business development i'm, I'm not going to sell up in a glass of water because i can't but i can talk about games and music and, and all those kind of different things and that makes the, the bigger difference so from a, an agency owner perspective it's it's obviously quite a slog going out and finding new clients and new work coming mm. in to, to feed the beast so to speak you guys are what 200 plus Strong? How many? Oh, well, we're about uh, 120 now. 120. Um, yeah, we we made a decision last year to stop working specifically on our original uh, product until we stabilise our financial position, which is really focusing for hire. So to get to your point, it, yeah, it's still a slog. I think it's interesting working in in Australia, where there's about 2,000 developers in total. It's a very small part of the market, <laughs> and even to the point of sales in in any video game market, Australia is about two percent. So to be successful in games, your market's global. Everything you do is global. Everything you, you think about is global. Australia and you know, even a, a city like Adelaide or Sydney or, or even Melbourne, for that matter, is not not where you're feeling comfortable. I would have most of my conversations with anyone in terms of business development with Europe or, or the US. And that's a couple of days. Um, do you found that that's that relationships change since COVID? Like, do you have to travel as much as what you used to? It's been great. Yeah, I'm used to travel. Like, I think this industry has allowed me to travel all over the place and being able to speak with my customers, whether they be you know, consumers, people who play our games, versus the people that we partner with to make those games. It's been that kind of industry for as far as I can remember, and it's it's been fun. It's it's great. COVID came. We all got used to sitting in front of our screens and. Um, 
doing the same kind of thing. It just wasn't the same. Business took longer to do in, in all aspects. There was a, a major slowdown in terms of, well, how do we do it just for a start? So that was about a, you know, six to 12 months of learning how to do it. Then we learned how to do it. And then when we started to have our conferences, so conferences is a major driver of, of the games industry, particularly around its business. And there's about three or four of them a year. GDC, the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco in March every year is probably the first one. We went to that last year. It was not as big as it has been before. And I've been in San Francisco probably about 13 or 14 times during that conference. This year it was massive. It was huge. So everyone just basically loved and commented on, on how great it was to be able to interact with your peers directly again, which was fantastic. And again, in, in DICE, in Las Vegas, which is the decision makers of the games industry come together for a conference. It has been somewhat devoted to business development, but this year, biggest ever. It was, it's very much a, hey, we're all back together again. This is fantastic. Let's, let's form a partnership and, and make some great content together was certainly the main driver. And those things are going to keep on continuing. So yeah, there was, there was a bit of a slowdown in terms of, of, of um, what happened during COVID. Funny thing was there was more cons- consumption of content. So if you had a game in market, you were going to do yeah, well. but finding the the well the I guess the capital the investment for, to make content that was just that was just hard. So there were there two sides of that coin there. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, relationships are a key driver, and having that face to face chat is is a great thing to do. And, and I've got to say, you know, the funny thing is, person you meet at a conference or a party is like the contact you're going to have for, for forever. And I, I, I can say you know, that I've done a many deals by meeting someone having over a beer. That's, that's just not available during a time like COVID or, you know, having the understanding that you need to leave Australia to have the contacts because that's what people are talking about. I think um, I've spoken to people before about the games industry is pretty tribal. We don't like outsiders. <laughs> it, it's, it, it is, it's really funny. I, I've, I have difficulty understanding it myself sometimes. But yeah, it, it's kind of like you're coming into our territory. What do you know about games? And it, it, it's, it's interesting because what we've found is people have gone, oh, you know, they like I talked about the incredible growth games has had over uh, for a long period of time. It's like, how can we make money from this? Well, developers see themselves as artists and they're not interested in saying, you're trying to monetize my, what I'm trying to do with, with my media. So that's, that's the first thing. Then it's, I, you know, I've, I've, I used to have a view that all businesses are the same. You make some things, you sell some. And it's all in the nuance of how it's done. When I moved to games, it was very much, oh, games is different. Games is really different in the way that we make, distribute, and work with our customers. It just is. is like when someone asks me what's a, a basic business model for games, I'll give them 10 without trying. So you've, and you've got to have your head around all those. So it's, it's, it's very, very different. So, you know, Having the understanding of, like, I, I speak from experience, I've made games, I'm passionate about games, I know what I'm talking about games, I'm not just selling games, or I'm not looking for investment, I actually know what I'm talking about, so I'm part of that community. It's very difficult for someone who isn't part of that community to, to then come in and go, well, I know what I'm talking about, because the industry will question the hell out of you to make sure that you do. But I don't have that problem, right? And it is because I'm part of that community, I have been for quite some time. So it, it's absolutely critical, and that's why, the, I guess, the face-to-face is so important in this industry. Absolutely. From a a financial point of view, so I'm just thinking about how you reverse engineer how much budget and time you have to spend on a game. So you might have this really awesome idea, you've established that there's a 
space in the market for this game mm. and it could go out to X amount of people. Are you then working backwards to be like, we can probably afford to spend this much time and money on this game to make it out and to bring it out to market? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, you, you come up with a game concept, you really are looking at what would be everything you'd love to cram into a game that's going to have this massive success. Like, sure, why not? Let's start there. Doing that is always interesting, but the best thing about it is having it all on the table to make that choice. When you're looking at what makes successful game, it's really about engagement with the game itself. So what are the things that you could take away from that game but don't take away from engagement? It's the decisions you have to make. When you look at particular budgets, I mean, sure, there's the $100, $200 million games from a AAA console versus the less than 100 k for a hyper-casual game made by a programmer or an artist in a garage. It's really knowing what you can and you can't do. Again, finding what's hot at the time is difficult, difficult as well because you're making a game that might take between one and two years between concept through to release. Wow. Is it going to be hot in two years' time? Yeah. Well, I hope so. It's a gamble, isn't it? It is, but I, I, but it's, it's kind of not as well. It's kind of like you you know what's hot right now. What twist on that is going to be iterative and, and going to be accepted as, as the norm in two years' time. So you kind of got a, a pretty good idea. What sort of trends are you seeing will occur in the next few years in your mind? Wow. It's funny. It's more about the business side more than anything else. I mean, free-to-play mobile has been hit pretty diff- or hard via the cost for user acquisition. It is terribly expensive to find people to, to um, come and play your games. Mm-hmm. Made difficult by someone like Apple who have gone, and rightly so, and to, you know, to start to look to protect people's privacy. So the data that you usually get from mobiles games isn't there. So user acquisition is even more difficult. So the advertising channels are becoming more and more expensive and very much so. freemium models are becoming less viable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's that, that model is there. It's, it's not broken. It's just very, very hard to succeed unless you have the capital to invest in the user acquisition. Then there's subscription models. So subscription has been around for a long time. I think ID Software was doing that in the 90s with Doom. So it's, it's, not, <laughs> not, it's not old. Well, it is old. But now you have different services like Apple Arcade and Netflix who are investing heavily into those particular platforms. That's a different kind of game as well. It's not a free-to-play game. It's now a premium game. Focuses on engaging players so they are playing those games for a very long time. Very much like, you know, console kind of kind of thinking whereas the big end of town is still looking in the console and pc is still still huge probably about 50 percent of the market is is pc and console of of that 50 percent half of that is pc that's probably the middle ground between mobile and console i mean that's where i see a lot of independent developers are now placing their, their bets understanding how it's difficult how difficult it is for a mobile developer to start to make a lot of money that's that's where they're looking to focus then you have some other really cool platforms. I would call the metaverse platforms specifically, and that's really around well, what does Fortnite offer? Fortnite is one of the better examples of what a metaverse can be. They've recently re- um, released their developer tool, so you have to start content or creating content for that particular audience. The other big one for me is Roblox. So Roblox has an audience that's been around for quite some time. 2006, I think they started that platform. They focused on a young demographic who have grown up with that. So, you know, basically a demographic of gamers who have grown up with the metaverse is kind of pretty exciting to me. Mm-hmm. And now having 
looking at what they're doing is trying to age up with their primary user base. Again, creating their own content for a particular demographic and they're now making games with, uh, I guess, a high-quality first-person shooter kind of aesthetic, which wouldn't have happened before. So those things are pretty exciting to me. That's where I see the future, essentially, is online multiplayer, metaverse type of platform is going to be fantastic. From a business side of things, developing games should get less expensive with the advent of, of generative AI, whether that is through art or through narrative. And I'm sure you know, people will be holding or gasping at that saying you're going to be inventing art and actual story using um, AI is, is, is horrific. No, it's not. It's a different skill set you people have to start learning. But that's going to be fairly disruptive for a lot of different things. It'll be disruptive with people who have those skill sets now. This is how do we how do we build the next generation of developers to come into an industry where essentially the skill they would have been training for even now is not going to be 100% relevant in five years' time. So those, those are the, the different things that we have to start thinking about. So 2,000 potential staff across the whole of Australia, you know, we're in a, a very small state here in mm -hmm. South Australia. There are some incentives to help you guys obviously run this industry in South Australia. How are you going about whether it's finding staff, bringing them to the state, upskilling? It's a, it, it would be a, an absolute slog for you guys, surely. It, it is it, it's difficult, but it's also easy to some extent as well. Yeah, like I've, I've, I've been, I guess, advocate for the games industry for a long time. So it's, it's great that Australia is now having subsidies for their games to make us competitive with other jurisdictions. Adelaide, well, South Australia has been at the forefront of that for games, which is it's pretty cool, as well as any, any PDV industries. We're the first to have a PDV rebate for visual effects, for instance. And again, the, the first four games. As now that's been... Is stacked on top of a federal uh, rebate as well, or federal tax offset. That, that makes it around about 40% potential rebate back on um, development of games. So that makes things easier. In terms of finding talent, COVID taught us how old work remotely. I think we moved our studio from 100% on-site to 100% off-site within three days and didn't lose a lot of productivity. So that, that was kind of an insight into, okay, we can do this within Australia. Let's try New Zealand. Oh, we can do it Australia and New Zealand. Okay, how about time zone? Oh, we've got a couple of have someone working in Japan for us now. A senior developer in Japan is working in us. It's a similar kind of time zone. So there are those tricks to start working or finding or widening the, your talent base that don't need to be in the place where you have your HQ. But realistically, when you look at, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about growing the industry in Australia. 2000 is not enough. I, I will happily go and speak to anyone who wants to set up a studio in Australia, and I have, and you know, some of them have actually come to start talking about it. They need more people. So it's, it's really about finding any way you possibly can to bring people in here. You know, I think I'm lucky in that I can speak directly to people that make those decisions. So even if it's, I want more senior people, they don't live in Australia. Many Australians who have made the decision, and it's a hard decision not to make, to leave Australia. We want people to come here, so we need to talk about immigration law. I mean, it's a game developer knowing about immigration law is stupid, but <laughs> that's just that's the landscape we're in. It is really about how you can grow it. The second thing about that is there are roles within game development which are in other industries, realistically. VFX, particularly around the art side of things, um, is somewhere where we've rated quite successfully over the last couple of years. Product development or product managers from any digital 
product that they're around, we have to teach the nuances of well, what makes a game different to a piece of SaaS software, for instance, but it's, it's, it's the, the concepts are the same. Um, a producer, which is just a game's understanding of what a, product, a project manager is, so we can take digital project managers into games, so that's not a too difficult spread to make, change to make. We have to start thinking more creatively where we bring our people from. Mm, I think the Visa one's interesting because there's a bit of a flow-on effect as well to smaller agencies. So, you know, we've got seven and, and five of them are on visas, for instance. And I think, you know, across, as you said, the VFX, the gaming industry, you know, where we're trying to bring more people in and mm. there's more visas that they're, they're opening up for, whether it's short-term or longer-term opportunities. And it is yep. an, it's an interesting skill that you have to look into and do research. And, and I think because we live, you know, in such a, I guess, remote place, it's, it's, it, you have to bring people here where possible. You do, right? And and South Australia is fantastic. I mean, I love it here. You know, I don't have a lot of work in California or Texas or the east coast of America. I travelled a lot to different game studios all over Europe. And you know, I, I I tell people all the time, come to Adelaide. It's it's a wonderful town. You know, it really is. I'm a I'm a surfer. To get to a beach where I can actually find a wave, I've got to go through two <laughs> wine regions to get there. I mean, that's tough, right? That's a tough place to live. I live, you know, 10, 10 kilometers out of the city and I've got koalas in my backyard. You tell people that kind of stuff. You're serious? Yeah. Yeah, man, this is Adelaide. Adelaide's cool. Beautiful. Yeah. So on back on, on revenue, so I guess from my point of view, one of the biggest uh, impacts in, in revenue was getting those producers you mentioned earlier to keep things on track on time and mm. budget. What sort of tricks would you give, you know, producers and, and others out there to, to keep things on, to, on track? Like obviously, you know, in the creative space, it's the, the biggest battle is creating stuff within the time frame you've been allocated. And you mentioned before around, you know, cutting back on the things you don't think are needed or things yep. that won't be needed or wanted and, and sort of optimising where possible. What sort of other things? That's it. I mean, that's that's the critical part. It, it, it's the able, ability to be able to kill your darlings and really, really, and do that effectively and not affect other parts of that project. But not the music side, right? The, ah. the music and the audio <laughs> is the most important part. I, I tell people I've probably forgotten more than most people will ever know about video and I want to keep it that way, right? Because it took me a long time to for, to forget all the technical things I know about music yep. to stop it, to start enjoying it again. Well, I like enjoying it. But, but no, so, you know, it breaks my heart, but I, I see sound, for instance, as being one of those things that you do chop early. Right? You, you don't go into a massive soundscape, even though it's critical to storytelling. That's just me being showing my heart again. You don't want to have that investment in, in putting it something that's there. It's going to take some, some, some time. You don't really need to. In, in mobile games, I don't listen to the sound. You just don't. So I'm, I'm not going to put a lot of time and effort into making sure that that's the best thing about a game, unless it's the game itself. One of my best friends did his PhD in sound, in gaming music, and he did it all on GTA and the, the radio yep. and, and how much time and effort went oh, yeah. into all that content. And that really was the hero of the game. Surely that really, you know, gets things going for you when you're, you're thinking about the audio being such a main okay. factor. I really do. Like I, I, like I really love sound. I really love a soundscape. I really, under, I really like the storytelling that sound creates without actually having to say a word. I really love that more than anything else. I've, I've been lucky to work with some fantastic composers and sound designers to be able to be helped to create that. But that's just not the norm, right? That, that, that's your, you know, what, GTA 200 million plus game that they're the games you get to do that kind of stuff and do it really well 
I've, I've made some of those games and, and it does make a difference. Yeah, you know, finding some tracks released on you know, internationally well-known or Grammy-winning artists, <laughs> record labels is pretty cool. And some of my sound designers have had that experience. We're working on a game now where sound is part of the, the critical narrative of how to tell a story, particularly with something different like we, we set a game in Australia. Australia is pretty unique in the way it sounds. It's, it's, it's quite it's, it's, it's amazing, right? Um, and also where you go, like, you know, you go yeah. to Queensland and it sounds completely different to South Australia or, you know, Sydney has those weird and wonderful birds that make that weird noise. I don't know what it is. Oh, for sure. I mean, the sound of a city is, uh, I love it. I, I can sit and listen to, you know, what a city sounds like for forever. It's always interesting to me. <laughs> Traffic horns and... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the hum. I mean, living in Sydney for about 20 years and then living just outside of the city, there was just always... a like a bottom end rumble that was just always, always there. You don't find that as much in Adelaide, for instance, but it's, it's pretty cool. But no, I mean, when you're looking at, at what to cut, it really is where's the value for the player going to be and how do I make sure that that's the most important thing or that is the thing that I don't cut. And and that's that can be pretty hard. You know, we've just had a conversation of, of, about sound, so clearly I like it or I find that valuable. However, your artist is going to have a, a different view of what, what's really important. They really need to see this and it has to be this kind of quality. Does it? Really? Yeah. So, I mean, in our industry, it's the same. It's, you know, what's important to the client, what's going to provide the best value or the clearest communication. So some things need to Indeed. go. How do you manage that pathway and communication with, sorry, it's got to go to a creative when they've got their baby in their hands. Yeah, and that's that's also a difficult one to manage. But, you know, again, you get kind of used to it. I mean, you when you're working with a large group of people creatively, it, it's always about collaboration and how you can best collaborate. And there comes time when it's like we're not collaborating anymore, we're making a decision. This is what it's going to be. <laughs> Someone's going to make the decisions. I've, absolutely, right? And I, and I think I've used that as a warning to people I've worked with over many years, do you really want me to make this decision? Really? Because I will. Find a way and, and find about the, the, the best compromise you can have to be able to do that. But again, that can get you to only so far along. You have to do, make some pretty hard decisions. So, yeah, you have to be prepared to, to, to cut some things that it could be quite severe. In terms of collaboration with creative teams and obviously expanding that to remote creative teams, how are you finding, I guess... How are you creating that collaborative space through platform software or regular meetings? What's all of that? I was pretty dubious when that became the, the I guess the primary way of collaboration is it's online in some way. What I found was I'm showing my age basically. Like I, I like to be in a room full of creatives and then discussing the idea of how we're going to go and do stuff. However, I find the uptake of communication technology, whether it be texting, Slack whatever platform they're called possibly is, is really comfortable for a lot of people to the point where if you're not comfortable with that, you're actually not collaborating. It's called collaboration software for a reason, right? And that works really, really well. And I guess even those tools over my, my time in this industry is, is, is always been critical anyway. You want to be able to show your work over uh, you know, long distances regardless. That's how you know, technology businesses work. So it's really about hatch, watching the technology move in a way that that's seamless. So you're not losing any time, not losing any effort. You've just got to get used to doing it differently. It's difficult as a business, isn't it, to adapt to that as well because you've got things like accessibility of data and mm. you know, living in Australia, we have shit internet at the best of times. Yeah. But 
You've also got things like data security and you're potentially sharing very large files mm. where people are downloading and uploading at the other end. And how, how have you gone about optimizing some of those pathways without costing a liver um, or, uh, or a couple of livers, I guess? It's getting less expensive than it, than it used to be. It used to be in like a major imposting that you know, someone like a, a Sony or a large film production company would have quite large requirements in terms of um, security and and fair enough, right? It's their IP. It, it is certainly the business driver. If it gets out early, that's going to spoil a lot of things will affect the bottom line. But those tools are more easy to manage. I think the platform holders are getting much better at it and they, they really, they see it as part of their business model is to be a trusted platform for information and security. So it's in their best interest to be able to do it well. So it'd be, it's become a lot easier than it used to be. I would say data security in your industry is probably even harder than others because you've got these diehard fans out there who probably have some skills involved in trying to access as yeah. much data as they can in terms of leaks and all sorts of other things. And, you know, I, I don't know whether to what extent espionage and stuff would, would be an issue, but like realistically, you're probably in one of the hardest industries for that data mm. security stuff, aren't you? Yeah, and, and you're right, right? Um, I'm in a technology industry. I've always been in, in technology, so using technology is just how it is. And I don't see myself as having any technology background at all. My you know, people I know would just go, you're an expert. I'm like, no, I, I work <laughs> with those experts. I'm nothing. So, yeah, the entry to that point is, yeah, people are very aware of it, how to use it, how to access it. So that's that's... That's that's just your user base. You know, your, your fans will try to hack into your systems to find out what's going to happen with the game you're going to make. They're, they're your fans. Yeah. But realistically, we just have to put that effort in. I mean, I, I I say I used to be head of security for an international airport once, doing some restructuring work. I find the games industry more secretive than that. <laughs> and I, you know, I'd get briefings from the Australian Federal Police on terrorism. Monday. No, games are way more secretive than that. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really about discipline as well. So everyone who works on a game has that discipline of understanding the security um, concerns, and that's even about talking about what you do, let alone protecting the actual data. So we're very, very much um, across that in everything we do. Um, what sort of tips, I guess, would you give to a, a smaller studio or someone trying to look at getting in the industry in terms of getting in the right front of the right people or once you're in that room, as you said before, you know, how do you, I guess, differentiate yourself from even a larger agency? So, mm. you know, maybe you've got you walking in behind with backing of 120 people and there's an individual or a very small studio in front of you. What, what sort of advice would you give at that point? Look, I like to help small studios and I do a lot of that wherever I can. I give them a lot of advice. It, it's really one, be brave and, 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 you know, and understand your worth. Don't go in thinking you're never going to get something, and you're going to, and you should be shooting low for what your what your expectations are. Like, no, you really shouldn't be doing that. That just means be prepared to travel. Be prepared to you know not get knocked back more often than you and your people take up what you're what you're trying to work with them on. Having resilience is is critical right? because you are going to get a lot of knockbacks. But believe in what you're doing. Right? If, if you're passionate about it. Make sure you share that passion. I think even at the large end of the scale, if you're trying to work with a partner and they sense that you're not really into what you're selling, why would they want to invest in that? You're not interested in investing in that. So, you know, making sure that that's, that's out there for anyone to see. And just, you know, I guess, you know, really have the fortitude to keep on going. If you believe in an idea and until 
you've exhausted every opportunity to bring that that idea or that that story to to a customer. Keep on pushing. It's amazing advice. <laughs> I've got one more before we go into our fast five, and that is. Is it different working for a, a public company than a private one? Oh, yeah, 100% it is. Working with a, a private company, it, it is private, right? All the information that you, that you have and what you're doing is up to you how you want to um, publicise that or not. Public company, yeah. It's, it's, we've got quarterly reports every three months or so which tell us people what they can like, work with, what they can't in terms of how the company is performing. Beyond that, Working with partners is particularly difficult. As, as I said before, games is the most secretive industry I've ever worked in. If you're suddenly working with a large partner who doesn't want the world to know that you're developing a game with them because they're ready to put their PR or their marketing behind that for another two years for release, well, you can't do that. You have to notify a marketer of a specific contract which has a material value, whether that's monetarily or through reputation. So you've got to manage those relationships a bit differently and be very upfront of these requirements that I have to have as a public company. You're, as a private company, you don't have a, generally don't have a large um, base of shareholders. We've got thousands and we want more, right? We, we want to diversify that, that share base or shareholder base as much as possible. So you're not working on what you think is cool or what your customers think is cool. You also have to make those things be cool and have a fantastic result that you can then talk to all your shareholders about in a way that you can't tell them about who you're working with. So <laughs> it, it makes things really, really difficult to, the, to that extent. But, you know, it, it has its pluses as well. Right? It really does make it a little better in terms of access to capital to invest in making you know, great games, great stories that you wouldn't normally have as a private company. So that has you know, pluses and minuses. So do you feel that the, I guess, the ability to make something more unique and more creative is there now that you've got, potentially easy access to money, but more accountable for the money? It's not easy, but the accountability also makes it, I guess, the, the stakes a lot higher. Finding a unique idea? No. They, that, that, they, I mean, great ideas come from anywhere, and they really do. Um, it's it's really about hoping that that, that, that great idea is, is coming from someone that you work with or wants to work with you. No, I, I'd have to say as a public company, we tend to want to manage that um, investment a bit differently, a bit better. We don't want to waste time. Investing in an idea we think might be okay, or we do it in a way that's going to be have a, a smaller effect on our finance rather than having a larger, larger impact. So, no, the ideas will come from everywhere. It's really around about how efficiently you manage the investment. Do you, I guess, diversify across quicker or shorter development time games and longer to sort of, I guess, even out things like cash flow? Is that a thing in your industry? Oh, where- it is. Like, like I said before, like the, the, from first idea through to release is a two-year period. So that's hard. If you're a, a small developer, that's all of your effort, time, and, and capital. You've got to have two years' worth to be able to get to the end and have the opportunity to then monetize that. Plus, plus then the marketing time and... All of that. <laughs> so, and that's all self-funded until you can monetize, which that's is ridiculous. Yeah. So the, the, having a larger company doing multiple projects simultaneously means you can kind of manage the lumpiness of that revenue um, profile, but it, it's, it's still difficult. You know, it's still two years, so you've still got to manage that um, effectively. You can do that through different business models, like having games in market, having being monetized versus a work for hire that will give you a, a steady recurring cash flow. There, there are ways to do it, and I guess diversification of those business models is where you want to get to. Ultimately, you just want to be making your own games and taking revenue from those, but, you know, 
developing a new IP in the games world is really hard, really hard. I mean, I've, I think I'm, I remember having a discussion with a peer of mine who developed an original IP, and it's huge, like massive. Seven years was from first concept to be able to to, to release of the game. Wow. All right, and that, that's a very large investment. I mean, it's a very large company, but that's the kind of commitment you've got to have to do things with. And still relevant after seven years? Yeah, right there. Wow. I mean, yeah. Well, the, the, the IP in question has, has, has released a sequel or two since that time and they're still some of the biggest games in. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, fast five. Do you work, Do you prefer to work in a team or alone? Oh, really difficult. I find I miss people if I don't work in a team, but I'm very effective or, or productive when I'm not. So it depends on what I'm, what I'm doing. If you weren't in the creative industry, what would you do? I have thought about this. But very funny, I'm like, um, having done a business degree, I loved economics. The same reason that I love games is, is the mix of understanding what a financial model looks like in a creative setting. And if it comes down to pure financial models in pure financial settings, yeah, economics is the way for me, I reckon. It is. You know, what are the, the weird things that are happening in the world socially or financially and apply that to a business model and, and a way to monetize a product is that that's that's pretty cool to me mm. if you're a type of cheese what cheese would you be oh i do love cheese very difficult i'm gonna go with a burrata uh, someone's pretty uh, looks on the outside it's pretty tough and hard you put your knife in it's soft like jelly so i think that's probably a description of, of who i am organized or messy yeah definitely messy i i while I know how to be organized, like I really do, I just find it terribly difficult. I'm not a process person. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy who just goes out and does stuff and lets the detritus pile around me and then I've done it and go, oh, I have to clear that up now. I feel like you're a unique individual where you've got money and the you know, you've got your revenue-based brain, I guess, where your numbers and figures and facts and then you come from that creative background, but you're still messy. How is how does that all align and work? Ah, <laughs> uh, it, it's really I mean, for me. It, it's being regardless of the mess is is actually understanding what you're doing. Right? It, it is people will see all those different things. It's it's really about well, I can call on that. I can call on that. I can call that at any point in time and, and be able to do that to that well. It, it's more than memory. Again, it's it's a passion for all those things combining. I do like to do all the things all the time. So trying to do that orderly would just slow me down. I just can't. Yeah, thinking slowly is not something I do. <laughs> uh, what's your favourite game? It, yeah, it's funny. When I before I started gaming, I bought an Xbox and I started playing a game called Bioshock. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Little do I know, I'd be running the studio that made Bioshock with uh, a year later. I still love that game. Uh, I think I. I I look back at the games I've loved through my life. There's been things like um, Age of Empires, which is a real-time strategy game. I've, I've, I've loved that. That's still around today. And, you know, even when I play mobile games, the, the simple ones are always the, the easy things to do. When I, when I saw Crossy Road, like, oh, this is just Frogger. And still addictive it was when I was 12 playing in an arcade in the early 80s as it is now in the, in the mid-2000s. You know, just defense. I mean, I just love games. What advice would you give to your past self or someone starting out in the industry? Oh, wow. Really, I mean, I think it's the same advice I gave before around you know, just being resilient, being able to have the, you know, really focus on being able to pick yourself up and being 
able to roll with all the punches you're going to receive as a creative because you're going to get a lot, you know, really, really. And just being able to be passionate about what you want to do and be able to keep on doing that. I think I've seen many, many creative people leave those industries and, and do something that they're not passionate about because it's just too hard. I mean, you know, my, my daughter's an hour of an age where they're thinking about creative industries. Like, hey, don't want to do that. It's just not cool. And they call me a hypocrite and I have to agree. So I have to encourage them how to do it well. But it is really how, how do you keep that passion alive all the time, you know? And how do you? You've got to have immense belief in yourself, right? And it's not, a, and it's not about you know, being arrogant or full of yourself it's really that no this is what i'm i'm here to do this is what I, I want to do i don't want to do anything else this is this is this is for me and finding a way to do it i've been lucky i've always found a way to do it even when you know people have asked me well how do you apply a creative perspective to a pure business focus I'm like do business creatively not not dodgily <laughs> but you know there are ways to start thinking about well you're talking about customers. They're people, right? People are inherently want to express themselves in creative ways. So, you know, think of it like that rather than what does a PL look like? I found from my point of view, just relationships within with yeah. other industry people or even people outside of the industry, that sort of stimulates it to get to get you going past that hurdle potentially to the next one and you know, solving problems, whether it's, you know, a hole in the market that they need a game for or yep. Something like that. That's that's what sort of gets me going, I guess. Oh, and I've got to say, like the games is one of the most collegiate industries I've ever worked. With. Like, if I have any problem at all, I will know someone who's possibly a competitor who I can call and say, "I've got an issue with this particular thing. How did? What did you do?" And I'll get it, have a response, and have a chat with them, have a conversation. That's fantastic. Um, it, it's really unique. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for your time. Cheers, Tom. It's been great talking to you. Cool. That was pretty painless. Thanks for listening to the Creative to Creative podcast. Tune in next time for some more inspiring discussions with leading creatives. And check us out on YouTube where you can see shorts and bonus material from previous and upcoming guests. This podcast brought to you by Emotion by Design.